You're listening to the podcast from Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadler. Episode 13, Early Jewish Sectarianism. As I have emphasized throughout this podcast, the Jews of antiquity, even if we limit ourselves just to those who lived in and around Jerusalem, were never one big happy family. Ezra and Nehemiah, you might remember, insisted that there were pure and impure Jews, good Jews and bad ones. Nehemiah inducted those few good Jews, the remnant, into a covenant. The rest, as far as he was concerned, might as well just go to hell, especially Tobiah, Sanbalat, and their relatives and allies. From the building of the Second Temple through the rise of Herod, and one might easily extend that by another 2,000 years, Jews probably disagreed with each other neither more nor less than any other group. They fought about ideas, the proper understanding of God's will, family, honor, and when they had the opportunity, power and money. The authors of First Enoch and the Book of Jubilees by adopting a solar rather than what we presume to be the more popular lunar calendar of the temple, created a wedge. Jews on different holiday calendars would have celebrated their holidays at different times. As the later split between the Eastern and Western Christian Church would demonstrate, calendar is itself no small matter. Neither though are the issues that spring from power. The events leading to the Maccabean Revolt were caused far less by debates over the extent of Hellenism than they were, I have argued, by family feuds that in turn were generated by greed and personal ambition. Last episode, I argued that the fall of the Hasmonean state to Rome was inevitable. Nothing that these minor Jewish rulers could do would have made a difference against the Roman juggernaut. By contrast, the persecutions initiated by Antiochus IV Epiphanes probably were avoidable. They resulted from a series of tragic misunderstandings created by intra-Jewish quarrels. In any case, the more that there is going to be at stake inevitably, the more dissension there is going to be. And the larger the pot, the more people who want a piece of it for themselves. What then does it mean to talk of Jewish sectarianism? The term has traditionally been applied to a very specific group of Jewish groups with just a little fuzziness around the edges. That is, following Josephus, at the core of Jewish sectarianism stands the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. The so-called fourth philosophy, Zealots and Sakari might be included. Sometimes added to this, are the Therapeutae, mentioned by Philo, and of course Jesus and his followers. Scholars have thus often spoke of this period from about 145 BCE to 70 CE as a time of extensive Jewish sectarianism. I am of two minds about framing the issue this way. On the one hand, this more or less reflects the way that Josephus himself discusses these groups. As we'll see in a moment, he introduces his discussion of them somewhat disjointedly with the phrase, Now at this time, there were three heresies of Jews which held different opinions. 
There is significant scholarly debate about the meaning of the word heresis. While it is generally taken to mean a group, sect, or school of thought, in Greek texts it often designates philosophical groups. Now there is an enormous scholarly literature trying to unpack precisely what Josephus might be up to here. Is he taking native Jewish groups and describing them in a Greek way so that his Greek audience would understand or be sympathetic to them? Or did the source from which he appears to have copied have done that, whether intentionally or not? How did these groups function? Given the fact that according to Josephus' own membership figures for these groups, which he gives elsewhere, they were relatively few, how did these groups relate to the majority of the Jewish population? Are we really dealing with a phenomenon that might usefully be called Jewish sectarianism? So my other more cynical and contrarian mind says no. Both prior to and after this period among Jews, as among all human societies, there had been more or less organized and self-reflective subdivisions. Call it heresies or something else, it doesn't really matter. The language or category of sectarianism may be of some limited use, but it should not mislead us into thinking that Jews were more divided at this time than they were at any other. These groups did share some common features that are worth exploring, as I will do in this episode. But it is important to keep the phenomenon, if we can even call it that, in perspective. Two further caveats. This is not the only time that I will discuss these groups. My focus in this episode is on origins and early years. Why do they arise during this time? They appear to develop and change through time but I will save the sketchy details of this development until our discussion of Herod's reign and then the first century of the Common Era. Second, and this hardly needs to be stated by this point in our podcast, our primary source by far is a single author, Josephus. Much of what I will do today is to try to separate Josephus's interpretation of what he is reporting from the hopefully accurate facts that he may have at hand. We might, that is, accept his facts, even if we modify his interpretation. In his book, Jewish Antiquities, his history of the Jews from the beginning of the biblical period until the revolt against Rome, Josephus introduces the sects rather abruptly, as I have already mentioned. The context in his discussion is of the activities of Jonathan. Josephus finishes the transcription of Jonathan's letter to Sparta, which puts us around 145 BCE, when he suddenly and abruptly inserts a brief description of the sects. The passage in full reads, Now at this time there were three heresies of thought among the Jews, which held different opinions concerning human affairs, the first of that being Pharisees, the second that of the Sadducees, and the third that of the Essenes. As for the Pharisees, they say that certain events are the work of fate, but not all. As to other events, it depends upon ourselves whether they shall take place or not. The sect of Essenes, however, declares that fate is mistress of all things, and that nothing befalls man unless it be in accordance with her decree. But the Sadducees do away with fate, holding that there is no such thing 
and that human actions are not achieved in accordance with her decree, but that all things lie within our own power, so that we ourselves are responsible for our well-being while we suffer misfortunes through our own thoughtlessness. Of these matters, however, I have given a more detailed account in the second book of the Jewish history. And with that, Josephus returns to his description of Jonathan's struggle with the Seleucids, in which these sects or schools play no role whatsoever. Josephus will return to these groups in a later narrative, but this passage raises two big questions. First, why is it here? If Josephus meant it to provide some context for the groups, whose first real activities do not occur until the reign of John Hyrcanus, why didn't he put this paragraph there. It is possible, but this is no more than speculation, that Josephus knew that these groups existed or formed in the time of Jonathan, but did not really know why. This gets to the second question. Josephus does indeed offer a lengthy discussion of these groups in his book known today as The Jewish War, which he wrote prior to Antiquities. There, he emphasizes their theological and, to a lesser extent, sociological differences, which almost certainly reflect his own knowledge from the mid to late first century of the Common Era. Did these sects actually hold these views at their origin? And if so, were these theological positions fundamental to their identity? My own intuition, based in part on what we will find these groups actually doing, is that these theological positions were not very critical to their early identity. It is worth noting, though, that the effect of Josephus' presentation is to color our understanding of these sects. They now appear theological rather than political, however political their actual activities appear. So what exactly did these groups do? Let me begin with a more shadowy group that does not appear in Josephus the Chassidians. Literally the pious ones, they are mentioned just a few places in the first and second book of Maccabees. They first appear in the time of Mattathias, Judah Maccabees' father, where they are termed mighty warriors. In these few accounts, they indeed function only as fighters. Are they an early sect? Predecessors of the Pharisees or Essenes have some scholars have alleged. Trying to answer this question highlights a more pervasive methodological issue. The Greek term that we find in 1st and 2nd Maccabees almost certainly translates the Hebrew word chasidim, or pious ones. Are the authors of these books referring to individuals whom they consider pious, or to an organized group that denotes itself by the term the pious ones, the chasidim? In English, we might differentiate these two meanings by using upper and lower cases. Ordinary individual pious ones, chasidim, we would denote, denote with a lower case. But Hebrew has no upper or lower cases. So, in cases when the word can be used ambiguously, and we have no direct evidence for the existence of an actual organized group, we move on uncertain ground. For my money, with the Hasidians, we are not dealing with an organized group. The authors use the term to denote a much looser collection of armed resistors to the Seleucids, on the same side, more or less, with the Maccabees, but who do not directly submit to their control. 
Aside from their name, we might not otherwise think that they were drawn together by any particular shared ideology or religious concerns. The ambiguous case of the Hasidians is instructive when we turn to the Pharisees. There is enough evidence to be able to state without a doubt that the Pharisees really did constitute an organized group or party. But that is not to say that we can disambiguate every instance of the word Pharisee. In Hebrew, the term means separatists. And when it is used, it is not always clear if we are dealing with the actual organized group or individuals who are simply separatists. Given the fact that we possess almost nothing that we know is written by a Pharisee, and if you discount the letters of Paul, the self-proclaimed once Pharisee, then the count actually drops to nothing, this will become an increasingly difficult methodological problem, especially when, in a future episode, I return to the writings about the Pharisees found in Hebrew sources. Josephus only mentions the Pharisees in his narrative on Jonathan. They don't actually do anything until the time of John Hyrcanus. In this account, Josephus tells us that the Pharisees were great, that they were influential, that Hyrcanus was a student of theirs, yada, yada, yada. That's all Josephus's evaluation. Then he gets down to an actual historical event. Hyrcanus threw a banquet for the Pharisees, and now, I quote, began by saying that they knew he wished to be righteous and in everything he did tried to please God and them, but the Pharisees profess such beliefs. The Pharisees are delighted by his hospitality and deference, and they quickly declare themselves satisfied, except for one. Eleazar, whom Josephus tells us, was basically a troublemaker, insisted that to be righteous, Hercules should give up the high priesthood. Why? Because we have heard from our elders, Eleazar replied, that your mother was a captive in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. This was a double zinger. From a legal perspective, had his mother really been a captive, it would have disqualified him from the high priesthood. Probably more importantly, though, it was more or less equivalent to publicly telling somebody your mother is a whore. Hyrcanus understandably became angry, and one of his friends, a man named Jonathan, who was a Sadducean, further provoked Hyrcanus. Hyrcanus insisted that the Pharisees punish Eleazar, and this they were certainly willing to do, with flogging and imprisonment. This, though, was not enough for Hyrcanus, who became convinced that Eleazar merely articulated a belief held by most of the other Pharisees. So Hyrcanus became a Sadducee and abrogated the Pharisaic regulations. Far later rabbinic sources attempt to explain which regulations might have been meant here, but even if they are accurate, they're not very informative. Josephus, though, himself does not tell us. Instead, he further clarifies the differences between Pharisees and Sadducees. The former, he tells us, adhere to certain regulations not found in the Torah, which the Sadducees reject. Moreover, the Pharisees had the allegiance of the masses, but the Sadducees were followed only by the wealthy. What are we to make of this account? It is first worth noting that Josephus' description of the differences between the Pharisees and Sadducees 
have no relation to the incident with Hyrcanus. I doubt that there really was a banquet, but the tensions that the story is meant to explain are plausible. That is, remember from the last episode that John had assumed the title of king. Although he was the first of the Hasmoneans to do so, nobody questions this. Instead, it's the consolidation of royal and high priestly power in one person that provokes at least some of the Pharisees. Seen in this way, the problem is not Hyrcanus' actual qualifications for the high priesthood, which is more of a pretense than a core issue, than it is the consolidation of power that had traditionally remained separate. Even David and Solomon had high priests. As long as the high priest did not actually take the title of king, even the de facto exercise of royal powers by the high priest could be ignored. Hyrcanus' assumption of a royal title made the issue too visible to ignore, at least for some. In this encounter, however imperfectly remembered, the Pharisees and Sadducees acted as pure political parties. This was again all about power. The Pharisees slipped and the Sadducees exploited the opportunity. This rivalry between the Pharisees and the Sadducees for political patronage would continue well after the death of Hyrcanus. It is also in a similar context that the Essenes appear. Josephus' first report of an action by an Essene occurs in the reign of Aristobulus I. Josephus reports an incident involving a certain Judah the Essene, a prophet who was in the midst of conducting a fortune-telling class when he mistakenly thought that he had mistakenly foretold the death of Antigonus. As Judah despaired of his mistake, though, he was relieved to discover that he was in fact right. Antigonus had been murdered as he originally foretold. In this anecdote, the Essenes, or at least one, are presented as accurate fortune-tellers, with no reference to ideology, religious, or otherwise. This peculiar reference to the Essenes may or may not relate to the community that produced at least some of the Dead Sea documents. One of these texts, labeled by scholars MMT, standing for the Hebrew phrase used in the text, Miksat Ma'aseh Torah, or Some Precepts of the Torah, purports to be a letter from the group to a ruler, explaining why the letter writers have separated. There are three parts that comprise the letter, while some scholars think that these parts may not in fact all belong together as part of a single document, Many others accept the connection between the parts. The first part is simply a listing of the solar calendar. The second details a number of laws, almost all concerning issues relating to the temple and its purity. And the third is an exhortation to the letter's recipients. The third part explains that the writers have separated from the multitude of the people and their impurity and urges the recipient to study the Bible carefully and return to the true path. He is to think particularly of the deeds of David and the other kings of Israel. In fact, the writers claim to be sending the letter only, and I quote, For your welfare and the welfare of your people. For we have seen that you have wisdom and knowledge of the Torah. Consider all these things and ask him that he strengthen your will and remove from you the plans of evil and the devices of Belial, 
so that you may rejoice at the end of time, finding that some of our practices are correct. And this will be counted as a virtuous deed of yours, since you will be doing what is righteous and good in his eyes for your own welfare and for the welfare of Israel. What can we learn from this somewhat elliptical passage? The addressee appears to be a ruler of Israel. Given the example of David, the addressee might himself be a king. The tone is mild. The king, if we can call him that now just for the sake of argument, has, in the eyes of the letter senders, gone astray. There is still hope that he will return to the correct path. At stake are these unspecified practices. If these practices refer, as likely, to those enumerated in the second part of the letter, then they primarily concern issues of the temple. If they also refer to the first part of the letter, then issues of calendar might also be involved. Scholars have debated the identity of the ruler and the circumstances that might have led to the letter. Incidentally, and I say this parenthetically, although I am calling this a letter, it might not really have been sent. The letter is a genre in ancient literature, sometimes written only to tell a story or make a point in a particular way. Anyway, most scholars probably think that it refers to Jonathan, which would place the dating of the events around 150 BCE and basing it on his assumption of the high priesthood. Indeed, it seems that the legal or halakhic positions of the letter senders outlined in the second section match up pretty well to the positions that the rabbis much later tell us are to be identified with the Sadducees. Following this line of interpretation, the letter would have been sent by disgruntled Sadducee priests who saw their control over the temple and its practice slip. The term Sadducee, in fact, almost certainly comes from the word Sidoki, that is, a descendant of Tzadok, David's high priest. They would have been galled by the Hasmonean assumption of their ancient prerogative. This or something like it might well be true, but I want here very tentatively to float an alternative interpretation. The recipient might instead be John Hyrcanus. The occasion for the split would not necessarily have been his assumption of the priesthood, although this issue may have become more of an issue post facto, but his assumption of the royal title. As a follower of the Pharisees, he might have conducted some matters of the temple differently than what these Sadducees were used to, and this small subgroup of Sadducees decided to split off. Hyrcanus would move over to the Sadducean side, but we should not expect all Sadducees to be alike. One might argue that it is precisely the issue of power that sets the best conditions for internal schism. This dating might also make slightly better sense of the formation of the sectarian settlement at Qumran on the western shore of the Dead Sea, which we now think dates to somewhere around 100 BCE. The group responsible for the letter found their appeals ignored or worse, and after some years truly separated from the multitude of people. Regardless of the exact dating, though, this letter justifies their group in terms of temple practice. Let us now return to Josephus. According to his account, Hyrcanus' break with the Pharisees continued through the reign of Alexander Janaeus. 
It is not as if Aristobulus I and Alexander Janaeus were adherents of the Sadducees. Josephus does not, in fact, tell us anything at all about their leanings or actions in this regard. It thus comes as something of a surprise in the narrative when Alexander Janaeus focuses his entire deathbed exhortation on the need to reconcile with the Pharisees. Although in his description of the civil unrest under Janaeus' reign, Josephus never mentions the Pharisees, in this last episode of Janaeus' life, he ascribes this hostility to the Pharisees, and he advises his wife and successor to repair the Hasmonean relationship with the Pharisees. Alexander took this perhaps a bit too much to heart. Josephus does not paint a flattering portrait of what happened next. She entrusted the Pharisees with much control of the internal affairs of the kingdom. Not only did they restore the temple service and certain laws as they thought proper, but they then went on a bloodthirsty campaign of revenge, having their enemies killed. Having taken advantage already of Alexandria, Josephus tells us, they stood in line also to rule behind the titular kingship of her weak-willed son, Hyrcanus II. This was too much for Aristobulus II, who, as we saw in the last episode, attacked and beat his brother, thus also driving the Pharisees out of power. Thus is the history of the Pharisees according to Josephus. They, along with the Sadducees and Essenes, then disappear from his account until the reign of Herod. Josephus's account is strongly colored by his own agendas, as well as those of the sources that he seems to use. Sometimes he presents the Pharisees in a flattering light. At other times, he excoriates them. Nevertheless, at its core, the picture of these sects is relatively clear. They, perhaps unlike the group that would retreat to Qumran, were primarily political. Despite Josephus' assertions, which seem to come from a much different set of later conditions, these sects were not truly active outside of the rarefied world of the Jerusalem elite. There is much that must remain frustratingly obscure about these groups, even if we see them primarily as political entities. Who founded them exactly and why? Who could join them? What was it that they really wanted? What happened to them between the reign of Alexandra and Herod? When we return to these groups in a few episodes, we will see a complete transformation. By the first century of the Common Era, they had become voluntary religious associations, and by the end of that century, they have disappeared. The thread of this story that I want to emphasize is that of power and autonomy. These texts, although we are now in a better position to refer to them simply as political parties, grew not despite, but because of Hasmonean power. Autonomous Jewish power created the conditions that led to the birth of these groups. These groups appear to have had no presence or appeal outside of the Hasmonean kingdom. I don't think that this is coincidental or an accident of source preservation. It is all about internal politics. I have devoted the last few episodes to the Hasmonean period, ending with the ascent of Herod. Before turning to Herod, though, I want to turn to the many Jews living outside of Judea, 
far from the political and military events of the Hasmoneans. Some, of course, continue to live in Babylonia. Many others, though, such as those strong Jewish communities in Egypt, lived along the Mediterranean basin. We know about these Jews through a wide if eclectic variety of Greek texts, both about and by them. They have traditionally been seen as practitioners of a Hellenistic Judaism that can be differentiated from the belief and practices of their Judean brethren. Is this, though, a distinction that can hold up to scrutiny? Stay tuned for the next episode. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.